council of achievements, a council of failures, a council of achievements through failures, a council of failures through achievements. Those damn academics. <laughs> Welcome to part four of my Vatican II series. Enjoy. <music> Okay, well, this week we're, we're going to be covering a lot of ground, so bear with me. Um, it's going to be a lot of heady theology, but also a lot, uh, you know, even if you don't understand all of the heady theology, there's also a lot of accessible parts in this episode, hopefully. And uh, so, you know, bear with me, stick around, uh, and you'll you'll catch some uh, uh, some nuggets here and there that you can uh, use. Uh, further down the line. So, the first thing I want to do is I want to address the elephant in the room uh, for those who are familiar with the Second Vatican Council, which is the concept of the development of doctrine. So, did the council rupture with the past? Did it not? Did it do both? That is, continue uh, the past but rupture with parts of it? Um, so, I've been reading this book by Thomas Guarino, and I'm going to be honest with you, I agree with almost all of his conclusions, but I cannot stand his premises. <laughs> uh, I think that it's just, it's not good enough. Uh, uh, several of his premises I outright don't like and disagree with. So, you know, and, and I haven't read the whole thing yet. I'm, I'm about, um, I don't know, uh, one third of the way through. And it's good. There's good stuff. It's very useful in my study of the council, but there's just too much I just don't like. So, uh, and I'm obviously willing to to learn, and maybe I'm just wrong about that. But what I'm going to do instead is instead of using Thomas Guarino, I'm going to use <laughs> Joseph Ratzinger, uh, and also some stuff I studied a few semesters ago, uh, namely through reading Plato. And uh, so the development of doctrine. So there was a huge debate that broke out, uh, I think it was in the 40s. Uh, and this is an infamous debate. If any of you have been following all of, all of the Vatican II disputes, uh, what happened before the council, the conspiracy theories or the, you know, the naive, like nothing happened. Uh, so the debate that most people talk about, and especially uh, traditionalists, has to do with uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange, his article called La Nouvelle Théologie, où va-t-elle? So, this uh, article was written as a response to Henri Bouillard, who was a uh, Jesuit who wrote a book called, uh, what was it called? Something about conversion et grâce dans saint Thomas d'Aquin. So, like, Conversion and Grace in St. Thomas Aquinas. And in that book, he argues for um, not only a change in terminology when it comes to presenting the faith, but even a change in concepts. Now, obviously, allergic reaction, a change in concepts. And so, and Guarino just basically uses Bouillard and accepts his premise and condemns Lagrange. And I just, that's just too quick. Maybe he he explains that further later on in the book. I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He's definitely smarter than me. But 
I don't like that. Uh, and namely, I don't like that because uh, I I was reading, well, I finished it a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, Joseph Ratzinger's book called Eschatology. And in it, uh, in one of the appendices, uh, he says something that uh, to me sounds like an outright agreement with Father Lagrange. And so we're going to look at that. So there's a lot we have to cover here. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set some context. I'm going to start with Joseph Ratzinger uh, in his description of um, the development of doctrine when it comes to the unity of the human person and the immortality of the human person in his book, Eschatology. So, so Joseph Ratzinger talks about... Um, Right, the human anthropology that the church uh, has to safeguard, right? It's teaching on humanity, on the human person. Um, it has to safeguard this doctrine uh, because it's part of the deposit uh, of the faith in a certain sense. There's uh, principles in sacred scripture, um, especially in the early books of the Torah, as well as an anthropology that you can extract from the New Testament that is crucial for the church to safeguard, especially in St. Paul. And uh, Joseph Ratzinger does this historical survey of uh, the church's safeguarding of uh, its uh, teaching on the human person. Uh, and here he talks about the kind of... So, okay, maybe I can give you a context. Uh, so, in the church's teaching on the human person, what you have is a safeguard of the unity of the human person. Uh, so there is a decided uh, rejection of a hardcore dualism where the human person uh, is basically some kind of soul uh, imprisoned in a body, and the body is not the human person, but the soul is the true self. The church rejects that. <clears throat> but at the same time, how do you make sense of the fact that the body decays and eventually dies, and yet the human person uh, is immortal, survives uh, death. In, in other words, um, how do you explain that without a distinction between the immortality of the person that moves on beyond death and the bodily existence of the person which ceases? So the church didn't have the conceptual framework to uh, defend this at first in its fullness, right? It didn't have all of the conceptual tools to defend uh, the unity and yet immortality despite death of the human person. So, um, and yet it navigates history, and he goes through, he, he does this survey, it's quite fascinating. It navigates history, uh, grabbing uh, as much as it can, as many tools that are, that are available, right, in order to defend the unity and yet immortality of the person despite bodily death. So, this history of uh, the church's safeguarding of this teaching culminates in Joseph Ratzinger's um, history. Uh, it culminates, or at least he culminates, in St. Thomas Aquinas, where finally conceptual tools that can help to understand this uh, seemingly contradictory but more paradoxical relationship between unity and immortality despite bodily death and he basically uh, extols St. Thomas for having uh, finally been able to formulate the church's teaching 
in a way that was conceptu- conceptually uh, satisfying to a certain extent. Okay, so en- enough about the background. Let's go ahead and read what Joseph Ratzinger says. <clears throat> he says, The human spirit is so utterly one with the body that the term form can be used of the body and retain its proper meaning. So, in other words, what Ratzinger is saying here is that the spirit of man, right, that which makes him a person, right, is the form of his body. So, uh, think of it as a principle, right? The body is the principle of that which makes up man. The form is the principle of um, that which makes the human person bodily. So, <laughs> let's see if I can formulate this in a way that's easier to understand. When you think of matter, you think of that which something is made up of. When you think of form, you think of that which something is, essentially. So that's why you can distinguish when speaking of a table, the shape and function of the table, as well as what the table is made up of. So you can speak of the fact that the table is made up of wood or of metal, and also the fact that it's a table. Now, apply that to everything that exists. Let's say you're speaking of dirt. Dirt isn't just matter. It's dirt. Dirt is a form. It's what it is. In other words, you can't have matter without form. So it's not two different things. It's one substance, but two different principles to explain the substance. Now, the fact that the human person, right, the form of the body of the human person is a spirit, means that when the dissolution of the body happens, the form continues to survive because it's in relationship with God. So, think of it as an ontological relationship. The the spiritual aspect of man is meant to be a bodily instantiation, but because it's spiritual, that is, because it is the ability to be in relation of knowledge and of free choosing, uh, then it doesn't totally cease to exist when it is away from the body, but it is meant to be a bodily instantiation. So there's an, there's a kind of not normal situation in which it finds itself. It's like a subsisting principle apart from what it's meant to usually be. So that's a mouthful, but that's basically what St. Thomas gives us, and he does so by applying Aristotle's concepts of matter and form, Uh, and uniting them in a way uh, that preserves the unity of the body-soul, you might say, or body-spirit relationship, all the while explaining the uh, immortality of the person even after bodily death. So it's genius, in other words. So I'll I'll reread the phrase I read, and I'll, I'll I'll, um, I'll read the rest of it as well. Ratzinger says, The human spirit is so utterly one with the body that the term form can be used of the body and retain its proper meaning. Conversely, the form of the body is spirit, and this is what makes the human being a person. And then he later goes on to say, The soul belongs to the body as form, but that which is the form of the body is still spirit. It makes man a person and opens him to immortality. So you have two principles, one substance, and yet one principle which subsists, that is, it continues to exist, despite the fact that it's meant to be bodily instantiated. Okay, that's a lot. If you don't understand, don't worry. This episode will get better. Um, it, this is uh, 
uh, more theological. Now, but it has a point, and so I'm going to continue here. <clears throat> and here he continues to speak of St. Thomas's uh, uh, teaching, but he prods it further, and he shows how it was not only exceptional, helpful, necessary, but also has limitations. So he says, in Thomas's interpretation of the formula anima forma corporis, or anima forma corporis, um, which basically means the soul is the form of the body, right? Uh, in Thomas's interpretation of that formula, both soul and body are realities only thanks to each other and are oriented towards each other. Though they are not identical, they are nevertheless one, and as one, they constitute the single human being. As both expression and being expressed, they make up a dual unity of a quite special kind. So that's brilliant. Uh, by the way, this book is utter genius. But he says here, they, co they constitute the single human being, so it's one thing, one substance, right? Uh, and and he, he kind of shows that they do so uh, by the distinction of expression and being expressed, right? It's a, it's a single reality, but you can distinguish between expression and being expressed. And so, and they make up a, a dual unity, a duality of principle, but a special kind of unity, which is a unity of substance, right? Okay, uh, and he continues here. The individual atoms and molecules do not as such add up to the human being. The identity of the living body does not depend upon them. So that's important. So he's critiquing a kind of materialistic, reductionistic understanding here. I'll read again what he said. The individual atoms and molecules do not as such add up to the human being, right? Man is more than just a, a, a compilation of atoms and molecules, right? He says, the identity of the living body does not depend upon them, right? It's not just that, right? But the identity of the living body depends upon the fact that matter is drawn into the soul's power of expression. So the human body is expressive, like substantially expressive, right? We don't just speak with our words. We also speak with our body, right? Man is a instantiate instantiated word in a certain sense right uh and this is where we get into uh um the christological basis for human nature right a theological anthropology so uh, uh so the identity of the living body is based upon the fact that matter is drawn into the soul's power of expression just as the soul is defined in terms of matter so the living body is wholly defined by reference to the soul. The soul builds itself a living body, a self-identical living body, as its corporeal expression. And since the living body belongs so inseparably to the being of man, the identity of that body is defined not in terms of matter, but in terms of soul. So he's basically playing out the logic of Thomas's. Um, uh, teaching here, which has been called hylomorphic dualism. So, hylomorphism, highly, um, is that how you say it? Highly? Or hi yeah, I think highly and morphe. So, uh, matter and form, right? Hylomorphism is 
a unity of substance, but a duality of principles, right? Um, and dualism, right, meaning the duality of principles. So anyway, the point here is that he is saying that this is genius and it, it, it safeguards the anthropological teaching of the church, right? And that's why St. Thomas is a highlight in the history of the church's development of doctrine, which is which development safeguards the unity of the deposit of the, of the faith, not only the unity, but the the immutability and the authenticity of that of that deposit of the faith. So here it gets very very interesting. So um, I'm gonna have to uh, divide this episode in several parts, but bear with me. So here is. Uh, a large paragraph. I'm going to read it slowly. I'm going to try to explain it. Um, and here it goes. In Thomas, these insights find their determinate expression through the Aristotelian understanding of prime matter and the role of form connected with this. Matter, which does not belong with some form in materia prima, pure potency. So in other words, uh, he's speaking of the fact, okay, so, so what is he saying here? Matter, if it is not combined with form, is merely pure potency. <laughs> so what does that mean? What that means is that try to think of what you understand as matter. If you think of atoms or dirt or you name it, right? You're thinking of something, namely atoms or dirt. And so... Atoms and dirt are things, and so, in other words, they're forms in a certain sense, right? And so, you can't have matter without form. If you do, it's merely the potential to be something without actually being it. In other words, the form is the actualization of the potential to be such and such. Okay. Only in, he continues, only in virtue of form does this materia prima, prime matter, become matter in the physical sense. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. If the soul be the only form of the body, then the ending of this form relationship by death implies the return of matter to a condition of pure potency. So he's basically saying that you know, if form leaves, matter goes back to not really being there, right? This reversion should not, of course, be thought of as occupying a distinct moment in time. We are making an assertion in ontology. The, the corpse is no longer a living body. It's no longer human in a certain qualified sense, right? Uh, but it, it eventually decomposes and becomes soil or, or you name it, right? Which, why? Because the form is no longer there. The form is what gave it its form. <laughs> so, so in matter of ontology, right? In, in matter of being. So he continues, in point of fact, the place occupied by the old form is at once taken over by a new one. So he can, he specifies even further, right? In other words, once the form of the living human being leaves the body, the body is no longer a living human being, 
is not human, really, in a certain qualified sense. Remember, we're using old conceptual language, not new, so bear with me. But what he's saying is that it's no longer human. It's now a corpse, right? Because a human, by definition, is a living, speaking instantiation of person, right? So... He says, in point of fact, the place occupied by the old form is at once taken over by a new one, so that physical matter remains as it was. However, since this physical matter is now actualized by a different form, it is something fundamentally different from that which existed before when the soul was the form in question. Between the living body and the corpse there lies the chasm, of prime matter. Consistently maintained, therefore, the Thomistic teaching cannot preserve the self-identity of the body before and after death. So this is really interesting. Uh, Father Norris Clark talks about this as well in his book, The One and the Many. So what's being said here is that the body can't preserve self-identity after death. Because it's no longer the body. It's now a corpse. And so he, he continues. And this is, I think, where he starts to show that there's limitations to the Aristotelian um, uh, tools being used here. I mean, this poses problems when it comes to the, the Christian practice of the veneration of relics, as Ratzinger points out in, in this book. He says, This might seem to be an advantage in the case of the question of resurrection. Yet it has anthropological and ontological consequences which are strange, to say the least. And he's going to explain. For this reason, Aquinas' new anthropology, summed up in the formula anima unica formar corporis, right? uh, meaning um, the, unique, the soul as the unique form of the, of the body, right? called forth stiff opposition and, and ecclesiastical condemnations. So yes, the, eventually this, um, this terminology will be enshrined in a council, right? But at first, it called forth opposition by the church um, in the sense of uh, ecclesiastical condemnations. Uh, I don't, I see, I don't have time to pull it out, but I have a, a, a book by Joseph Pieper called Scholasticism, and he gets into the the actual really interesting ecclesiastical slash political uh, history of um, uh, around the incorporation of Aristotle in Christian theology. Uh, but maybe we'll keep that for another time. So he continues at the philosophical level, it denied the identity of the corpse of Jesus with him who was crucified. Incidentally, if the body derives its identity in no way from matter, but entirely from the soul, which is not passed on by a man's parents, there would also be another problem here concerned with conception, with the genuineness of parenthood. So he's saying here that if parenthood, right, is genuinely a a relational reality that is genuinely real in the sense where there is a relationship of persons, 
right? And if there is a unity uh, of the human person, uh, then there's a problem here with the Aristotelian conception of matter and form because uh, it's the form which the parents do not provide, according to Aquinas, right? That makes the person, that makes the matter, right? The person, the body. And, but the parents would provide the matter, but not the form. And so how would that make them actually parents of the person? So it, it's a, it's a problem, right? Um, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay. And he continues, this was why Thomas himself held back from embracing the consequences of his own theory and, in the question of the resurrection, fenced it in with additional considerations meant to supply for its deficiencies. So in other words, he's saying that Aquinas himself saw the limitations of the, uh, of the tools that he was drawing from Aristotle. So in other words, this is a great step forward but it has limitations, uh, which require further explication, developments, uh, etc. And Thomas himself saw this, uh, and therefore uh, kind of compensated for it. And you see this all throughout Saint Thomas. He he does this a lot, um, and you know there's there, you can see there's moments where, um, for example, the cosmology of Aristotle held to an eternal universe, and Thomas saw no philosophical arguments that could prove in when it comes to reason alone uh the fact that the universe was not eternal uh but he accepted it based on the scriptural data so this was a, a instance in which reason didn't furnish furnish thomas with the tools to um uh to explain uh what what revelation was teaching uh but he accepted it because he knew that you know um it was compatible because that this is Thomas's principle, which is that um, if you think there's a contradiction between faith and reason, you've either misunderstood faith or misapplied reason. And so there's instances when he he's full aware of the limitations of the project, and he knows that maybe conceptual tools will later on be provided, etc. Just like he did with the matter form um, uh, development here to explain the church's teaching. Uh, you know, on the human person. So, in other words, this is brilliant. <laughs> okay, so, Ratzinger continues, and this is my last quote from here, and then we'll move on, um, hopefully. In its original shape, the Aristotelian concept of matter and form underlying Durandus's thesis. Okay, so he's quoting here um, Durandus of, of Saint-Pourcent or uh, I don't know how you would say that with an American accent. Anyway, uh, this was a uh, 13th and 14th century Thomist, I think, right? Thomist? Yeah, uh, well, not really a Thomist, but he kind of departed. So, okay, actually, this is really important. So backtrack, sorry about that. Here he says, only Durandus of Saint-Pourcent, who lived between 1275 to 1334, dared to accept all the consequences entailed in Aquinas' starting point. Basing the identity of the risen body exclusively upon the identity of the soul, his remained a somewhat isolated voice in the medieval period. During the 19th century, the thesis was taken up again by such men as Laforet, Hettinger, and Schell. In the 20th century, it was adopted by Billot, Michel, 
and fueling. So <laughs> Ratzinger knows his stuff, right? So he's showing how Aquinas himself saw the limitations, but also saw the, the amazing truth and ability to safeguard the church's teaching by this conceptual framework. But there, it wasn't perfect, and you see this Durandus basically going kind of crazy with it, but in a logical way. So, and so this is where the quote comes in. So Ratzinger says, in its original shape, the Aristotelian concept of matter and form underlying Durandus's thesis is no longer conceivable to us. The simple repristinization of a thoroughgoing Thomism is not the way we seek. The synthesis which Thomas formulated with such brilliance in the conditions of his century must be recreated in the present in such a way that the authentic concerns of the great doctor are preserved. Okay. So all of that was to say that Ratzinger explains in a very clear, um, helpful, intelligent, non-ambiguous way that the formulations of doctrine of the church, right, uh, are not relativistic, but they are contingent. And he shows how the church has safeguarded the deposit of faith through time. Now, the whole point of saying all this is that I think Henri Bouillard, in his book uh, on conversion and grace in St. Thomas, uh, he, he toes a line that is very uncomfortable, and Father Lagrange reacts to it in a way that I think is totally reasonable. Nevertheless, um, Lagrange had a much more conservative um, personality, you might say, or tendencies, which obviously is a good thing. Uh, and Bouillard obviously had a more progressive tendency and personality, which can be a good thing in certain instances. You see, what I see in Ratzinger is the perfect blend between both. In fact, I'm about to read to you what Ratzinger says at the end of this book, which sounds a lot like Father Lagrange says in his article, La Nouvelle Théologie ou va-t-elle? So, this is kind of to muddy the waters in order to produce clarity. The point being is that this is a complex debate and there's been arguments that are bad on both sides. But there's also been good arguments on both sides. And I think the best argument in this instance comes from Joseph Ratzinger. And then, and then we'll delve into Plato a little bit. Actually, let's go ahead and uh, let's see if I can read uh, what Father Lagrange says in his article real quick. It's an English translation. Um, I have the French and the English, but obviously I'll read it in English for you guys. Just a second. Okay, so Father Lagrange says this in his critique of um, Henri Bouillard. He says, But how can one maintain the sense of this teaching of the Council of Trent, namely that Sanctifying grace is the formal cause of salvation. I do not say if, quote, one substitutes a verbal equivalent, end quote. I say with Father Henri Bouillard, if one substitutes another idea. So, okay, I'm going to break that open because it's, it's hard when you don't have it in front of you and I'm reading it to you. There's, uh, there's italics and quotes and everything. So I'll, I'll try to make it more clear. Here's the, the phrase. But how can one maintain in italics, the sense, end of italics, 
of this teaching of the Council of Trent, namely that, quote, sanctifying grace is the formal cause of salvation, end quote. And then he continues, I do not say if, quote, one substitutes a verbal equivalent, end quote. I say that Father Henri Bouillard, sorry, I say with Father Henri Bouillard, quote, if one substitutes another idea, end quote. He's, so typically a uh, French way to put it. So uh, the way, um, anyway, the way French people express themselves uh, has a, a different style oftentimes when it comes to, there's, there's a kind of uh, irony in use that the French often use. But anyway, so the point being here is that he's saying, Bouillard is saying, let's substitute a different idea. Uh, and Lagrange is saying, no, uh, and, he'll, and, he'll, and I'll read here why he says no. Uh, Lagrange is saying, you can substitute different words that might explain the idea better, but you can't substitute a new idea. And so he explains himself, and this is the part where he says, if it is another idea, then it is no longer that of, in italics, formal cause. He continues, then it is also no longer true to say with the council, quote, sanctifying grace is the formal cause of salvation, end quote. It is necessary to be content to say that grace was defined at the time of the Council of Trent as the formal cause of salvation, but today it is necessary to define it otherwise, and that this passé definition is no longer current, right? It's this past definition, right? And thus is no longer true, because a doctrine which is no longer current, as was said, is a false doctrine. So, what Father Lagrange is saying is that, Bouillard, you're saying that we can change the ideas. If you change the ideas, right, then what was defined in the past is no longer true, and you can't do that. Now, Going back to Ratzinger, uh, Ratzinger says, quote, The church's teaching office has hereby entered into a theological debate which it sees as touching the limits of theology, that is, the dismantling of the concept of the soul. So uh, Ratzinger is responding to a crisis um, that's happening in theology, and a, a crisis that is putting in question right, the very use of the concept of a soul. And here, Ratzinger says, Here, the linguistic substrate of faith, faith's fundamental language, is en jeu, right, is at play. This is important, is what he's saying. That boundary point has been reached where, over and above the question of interpretation, the loss threatens the interpretandum, right, the, the, the data interpreted. In other words, he says here, the objective content itself. So here, Ratzinger is agreeing with Father Lagrange. You can't dismiss the word soul in theology, uh, or else you know, you're going to dismiss the, the very object that the word soul points to. And yet we just read from Ratzinger, right, a history of the development of St. Thomas's position in order to safeguard the teaching of the Church when it comes to human anthropology, and yet Ratzinger himself points to the limitations of the conceptualization, uh, namely the words that St. Thomas uses, right, as well as the concepts, right, which are Aristotelian, to safeguard the church's teaching. So it, it seems like there might be a contradiction in what Ratzinger is saying in the beginning, when I read to you the development of um, 
uh, his his historical account of the development of the church's teaching on the human person. And then at the end, he says that you can't just dismiss certain words uh, because uh, if you do, then you lose uh, fundamental ideas, right? And so Henri Bouillard seems to agree with Ratzinger part one, and Lagrange seems to agree with Ratzinger part two. But the thing is, Ratzinger is a, a nuanced, intelligent uh, master of theology, and he sees these as compatible, and he also sees two extremes. So on one extreme, he sees the problem with uh, uh, enshrining uh, certain limited formulations that are contingent on history, right, uh, because they are the church's process of utilizing conceptual tools in order to safeguard what the church has uh, always taught, right? But that, so that sounds kind of Bouillardian, right? But you got to be careful because on the other hand, he's saying you can't just dismiss words like soul or else you dismiss the content that the, the word soul represents. And here he sounds like Lagrange. So when it comes to the church's use of philosophical systems that are available in history, right, just as Aristotle was available to Aquinas, right, what she does is she uses it at the service of divine revelation. And divine revelation, the study of it, is theology. And as we know, the soul, <laughs> pun intended, of theology is sacred scripture. So in other words, you can't just change or dismiss a word that sacred scripture uses. You must understand what sacred scripture is saying correctly and to do so, you can use philosophy or philosophical systems or philosophical tools available to you, right, as long as they're subject to the meaning of sacred scripture. And so that's why scripture is sacramental in the sense where it's words that convey a deeper reality that must be safeguarded by the church. And this is why Ratzinger is consistent, right? And this is also how you could charitably read Bouillard, but he's being he's towing the line in a way that's just not helpful. And I find that Thomas Guarino, in reading his book, uh, it just kind of glosses over this. Uh, at least, okay, I haven't finished the book, so. <laughs> but in the beginning, he kind of glosses over this. He does mention Lagrange at one point. But at, on the other hand, in Lagrange, uh, there seems to be a little bit of a overemphasis on the philosophical terms and and tools that from Aristotle slash uh, St. Thomas's incorporation of Aristotle. Uh, and this will tie into uh, uh, Monsignor Lefebvre in a bit. Just hold, bear with me. So, so when it comes to uh, Ratzinger, he, he really is a scripture scholar, right? Scripture is at the heart of Ratzinger's theology. He's also uh, a patristic scholar. And uh, he thereby has an affinity for Plato because the fathers saw an incredible amount of closeness, compatibility, and, and helpfulness in the Platonic system, but with important you know, caveats and corrections, which is why Ratzinger uh, says that he, you know, he loves Plato, but with caveats and corrections. And so, uh, turning to Plato, uh, specifically Plato as exposited by D.C. Schindler, who is a great uh, theologian slash philosopher, 
so this is this is part of my paper, so I'm going to be reading what I'm saying, but I'm quoting uh, Schindler and Plato. Here we go. Before turning to the medieval problem, a deeper explication of certain aspects in Plato's philosophy, which was very influential in pre-medieval Christian thought, is warranted. So, Plato tells us in Letter 7 of the Republic, quote, For every real being, there are three things that are necessary if knowledge of it is to be acquired. First, the name. Second, the definition. Third, the image. Knowledge comes forth. And in the fifth place, we must put the object itself, the knowable and truly real being. In other words, as David Schindler explains, quote, Knowledge is not reason's destination. After knowledge comes the real being itself, which is knowable. Thus, Schindler adds, quote, For a soul to join with its object, it does not take the object into itself, as it seems to in Aristotle, but goes out in some sense to enter into the object. Reason is essentially ecstatic. Okay. So what Schindler here is saying is that Plato is saying that there's a difference between the words we use to describe a reality, which help us attain knowledge, and then there is the purpose of knowledge, which is the soul's union with the reality, right? And that's the goal. So in other words, it's not for us to draw down reality into a conceptual framework and thereby restricts it, because reality is so much more. By the way, the title of my paper is called The Sacramentality of Creation, uh, which will, it, it was just key here, right? In other words, uh, I mean, it's, not, it's not the greatest paper. I, I didn't get 100, but bear with me. Um, the point being here is that you can't just take reality itself and limit it with your words, right? But you can, by your words, transcend right, the limitations of, of reason and enter into the mystery of, of reality, right? Um, but it's important here because uh, I, the paper continues. What comes to the fore in Plato's words and Schindler's explication is the application of Plato's idealism to the human mind's search for truth. Since the material world is mutable and truth is immutable, Quote, the qualities of an object are all the things that can be said about it, while the being is the unity of the thing that transcends the plurality of attributes, the essence that can be known, but not expressed as it is known. End quote. Okay, uh, let's see. Do I want to read this next part? Yeah, I actually kind of disagree with myself in the next part, so I won't read it. So, I'm not arguing without any caveat here, I'm not arguing for uh, Plato's idealism in the sense of there's a world of forms. I would take Aquinas' position, uh, which is a uh, synthesis of so many others, that um, all of the forms, in a certain sense, are a unity in God's mind. In fact, they are the simplicity of God's essence, but when they're instantiated, they become the multiplicity, thanks to matter, um, uh, of, of created forms, but, okay, that's the purpose of that paper. Uh, the point of me reading that is to show how Ratzinger is so much more nuanced 
then um, in this specific topic, so bear with me because I know people are going to go crazy when I say this, but in this specific topic on the development of doctrine, this is where Ratzinger is more nuanced than either Bouillard or Lagrange. Now, this is not to downplay uh, Father Lagrange. Father Lagrange is amazing. Uh, but this is to say that there is a, a little bit of a, um, uh, how to put it, a little bit of a narrow emphasis on the scholastic categories. They're almost made equivalent to the realities that Scripture speak of, right? Uh, but there's a reason why Scripture is the soul of theology, not uh, scholastic uh, philosophy, right? Scholastic philosophy is to help us understand Scripture. Okay, that being said, Bouillard, <laughs> it's just, it's frustrating. And that's why Guarino, I, I'm, I need to, I'll finish the book, you know, and hopefully I'll like it more. But Guarino kind of frustrates me too because he just like just unilaterally and uh, une unequivocally just agrees with Bouillard and just kind of dismisses Lagrange, which I don't like. So, but you know, that's just theological disputes. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, these people are smarter than me. But this will conclude this episode where I'm going to talk about uh, Father Lefebvre, uh, sorry, Monsignor, sorry, Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, uh, and so, yeah, this actually was much more technical than I thought it was going to be. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. Next episode, we're going to get into the council itself because everything I'm talking about in this episode is actually deeply relevant to the Second Vatican Council. Uh, so yeah. Okay. So I'm going to conclude with, uh, so I'm reading Father, ah, I keep saying Father, I'm reading Archbishop Lefebvre's biography and, um, in it, there's several passages that speak of his attitude towards uh, theology and uh, scholastic philosophy and overall it's a great it's a great book I'm not done with it I'm enjoying it it's a little dry but I am enjoying it and um, you know I, I'm this is not to hate on Lefebvre at all I actually I really like him so far in the, in the book I think he's a holy man uh, who is faithful to what was given to him. Uh, he's not, he's no Ratzinger. He's not a Mozart of theology, nor ought he to be, right? So, um, but here's a statement that he makes. He says, On ne peut être catholique sans être romain. <laughs> Which means that one cannot be Catholic without being Roman. Uh, and that, that's in a footnote. It's a footnote to the phrase here that says, this Romanity, right, Roman Catholicism, specifically Roman Catholicism, right? This Romanity, which is the soul of the Catholic faith itself. That is part of my issue here, is that, right, Catholicism, you know, you might say, structurally is Roman because Rome is the see of the head of the church. But but Catholicism is not Roman. It's Jewish and Palestinian, you might say, uh, if you look at the, the New Testament, right? Uh, Catholicism, neither is it Roman, neither is it Greek, neither is it Antiochian, 
neither is it, I don't know, um, uh, you name it, right? Uh, Ukrainian, right? Catholicism is rooted in sacred scripture, and the East and the West have developed sacred scripture with the tools available to them. And this restriction of Catholicism to Roman neo-scholasticism is problematic. That doesn't mean that neo-scholasticism is problematic. It means that restricting it to neo-scholasticism is problematic. And this is a lot of what the council is reacting to. And I would even say that it overreacts to it. Uh, and Ratzinger has things to say about that, but that'll be for next episode. Uh, but I hope that this kind of heady episode, uh, at least for those nerds out there who are into this stuff, shed some light on the dynamics between Bouillard, Lagrange, Ratzinger, Lefebvre, um, and also what the council was doing, the human elements, people going back and forth, right? And especially next episode will be helpful in this area. Uh, and also the fact that um, the Spirit is guiding the church despite its failings. And ultimately what I want to look at is the voice of the church, not of any individual, right? The voice of the church in its council, as well as the limitations of councils and the purpose of councils, right? Um, in the life of the church uh, subsequently to that. So this will end this fairly complex episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you appreciate this content, uh, like, subscribe, support us at patreon.com slash Project. Next episode will be, will be easier, I promise. Bear with me. See you guys next week. Thank you.